Hi. I know you just uh, were standing, but would you stand with me one more time if you would? We're going to be reading out of Hebrews chapter 11 today. And in the Eastern context, one of you approached the scriptures, you did two things. One thing you stood as a way to distinguish between God's words and somebody else's. So they always stood. The second thing they always did was they recommitted themselves to God in the form of a, a prayer, a declaration. Uh, they called it the Shema, which means to hear or to listen in the Hebrew. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6. So we're going to say it uh, together. I'll, I'll, I'll say a part and then you repeat it back to me. So let's do it together. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. These are the very words of God. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he, commend the wor- he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country, because uh, they lived, uh, because faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God." And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand in the seashore. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. From people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had not been thinking of their country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Thanks be to God. You may sit down. So there's this popular uh, bumper sticker, Christian bumper sticker a while back that read, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Do you remember this bumper sticker, right? How many, did anyone put that on their car? Yeah, yeah, my boss is a Jew. I always found that to be really interesting, sort of sort of play on uh, this understanding of Jesus as a carpenter. 
This is sort of our common understanding of, of Jesus as the carpenter. And we get that from two passages uh, in the Gospels, both of which are telling the same story about uh, this man. This, the crowd are asking themselves, uh, who is this man? Because he speaks with such authority. He comes in, in such wisdom and power in his speaking. Is not this Joseph's son? Is this not the carpenter? And so we take those two passages, and of course we've come to understand Jesus as carpenter. But this word carpenter in the Greek is actually the word tekton. And this word uh, doesn't mean uh, carpentry specifically. Literally it means one who works with their hands. It's more of a general word. A craftsman might be a better way of understanding. It's just sort of a general term that means one who works with their hands. And so while he may have been a carpenter, uh, the, the where we get it from really is a lot more general than that. And in fact, if we understand sort of the history and the cultural background of where Jesus grew up, I think a different picture actually comes to mind. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and Nazareth is a wood-starked area. It's basically the desert. There's not much growing. There's not a lot of wood. Wood was uh, used very expensive. It was, what you, it was a very expensive um, uh, material. So not many people use it. In fact, one Hebrew scholar, uh, James Fleming, says that nine out of ten homes were actually built with stone, not with wood. Wood was not really found much of anywhere in that area. That nine out of ten homes were actually built with stone. Nazareth itself actually is surrounded by rock, and about um, a mile and a half from that area is a giant rock quarry, which was used heavily in that day to develop the surrounded area, and really required almost all of the tectons, all of the craftsmen around. So if you were living in and around that area, particularly in and around that quarry, chances are you actually worked with stone than you did wood. So the, the image I have is Jesus sort of the master tecton, the great tecton, the great stonemason who probably walked with his father up to that quarry every day, about a mile and a half, and would cut rocks from the quarry. He'd hewn these stones so that they would fit perfectly into the house. Now, I can't prove that. That's not, uh, you know, he very well may be a carpenter, but the imagery I have, especially based on the, just the historical background, is I really picture Jesus working with stone, cutting rocks from the quarry, and hewing them to fit right in the right best place for the house. Now, hold on to that thought, because we're going to come back to it in a moment. Our passage this morning uh, comes, like we said, from Hebrews 11, and this is commonly known as the Faith Hall of Fame, I've heard it's called before, the Faith Hall of Fame. It's a list of all of these stories of people who have been faithful to God and have done things despite great opposition and because they loved God and they trusted God with all their hearts. And so we've uh, kind of uh, commonly dubbed it as the Faith Hall of Fame. And it reads this in, in verse 1, because really verse 1 is actually the, the thesis for the entire passage, uh, the thesis for what faith looks like. It tries to give us a definition of what faith is. So in verse 1 it says this, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Another uh, uh, NIV translation is, Faith is the certainty of what we've hoped for and the assurance of what we do not see. Now, I don't prefer either one of those NIV translations there because it makes it sound, based on, on how they translate it, it makes it sound like faith is this unswerving, like, like no, no allowance for doubt, no allowance for ever wondering whatsoever that if you have faith, you better have faith. 
It kind of comes off like these words like assurance and certainty, uh, the, the, uh, uh, being very sure of, of it. Really, uh, for me, it, it sounds like sort of this feeling of faith, this feeling that I just, I can never wonder, I can never doubt, I can never wrestle. I have to, no matter what, I just have to feel faith. Is that your experience? Because it's not mine. And it's not really the experience of the biblical authors or the biblical uh, characters as well. That the Bible is filled with characters that wrestle and doubt and wonder and question and even accuse God sometimes. And yet they are men and women of faith. And so if, if that's not what faith is, if the passage this morning isn't trying to tell us that faith is this unwavering, unswerving feeling of faith, what is it saying? Well, I think the key two words in question here are the words sure or assurance and certain. The first, if you're using your pew Bible there, it would be the, the first one would be sure and the second one would be certain. Now, sure is the word hypostasis, which means substance or the actualization of something. It's like when you say, um, I feel something, but I'm going to show you it, and that substance, that actualization of it is actually the, the proof of it. So this is, this is the substance, sort of the tangible expression of something. And the word certain is the word elenkos, which means evidence or proof. Not necessarily assurance, but evidence or proof of something. So when you put the two together and you kind of understand those two words, I actually think the King James Version is better in this context. Anyone a, a KJVer in the house? Yeah, we got our KJVers. All right, we're, we're going to you today. This is, this is your moment to shine. In the KJV, it says this, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance the hypostasis, the, the actualization, what you can feel, what you can touch, what you can see. It's the evidence of things we hope for. Faith is not, and this is your first fill-in, faith is not the absence of uncertainty. Faith is not the absence of uncertainty. It's the action despite it. Faith is not a feeling, it is a choice. Faith is not the absence of uncertainty. Again, we read all sorts of biblical characters who had all sorts of uh, moments of uncertainty and wondering and stress and faith. And I think God blessed every one of those seasons as they wrestled and doubted and even accused God at times some of their lowest moments, I think God was honored by that, that, he, that the conversation was continuing to happen. It's not the absence of uncertainty, it's the action despite it. It's not a feeling, it's a choice. I choose to believe God and respond in action despite how I feel. Faith is the substance, the actualization of things hoped for. It's what you can see and touch, and smell, and hear, and sense, and observe. Faith is the action despite any uncertainty I may have, which means two things. It means that you can have faith 
when you don't feel it. I have a lot of friends who are so close to faith, and yet they have this idea that faith is this feeling, faith is this assurance, faith is this, I have to know for sure before I jump in. And I just want to be like, no, no, you're there. The feelings will come. You've, you've, you understand you're there. It's time to jump. It's time to make that commitment. It's time to do it. You don't have to have it all figured out. There's so many people that won't come to church, that won't engage in the spiritual faith because they feel like they're not put together enough, that they've got to have it all figured out. Once I figure it out, once I've got that feeling and figured out, then I can come. And that's not what faith is. Faith is the action despite how I feel. So you can have faith even when you don't feel it. Even those are your lowest moments where you're like, I just, I don't know anything anymore. You haven't lost your faith. Jesus' love and assurance, his assurance will carry you through. It's the action despite how you feel. So you can have faith even when you don't feel. But the second thing is, you can say, feel, or emote faith. But if there's no actualization, if there's no substance, if there's no evidence, if there's no action, there is no faith. This is what James talks about. Faith without works is dead. Faith is the actualization of it. And so you can feel and come to worship every week and raise your hands and feel all of these things, but if your life isn't changed, there's no evidence. Faith is the evidence, the proof of what we do not see. And so we can feel all sorts of things, but if there's no substance, if there's no hypostasis with it, there is no faith. In the 19th century, Charles Blondin was the greatest tightrope walker in the world. And on June 30th, 1859, he was the first man ever to cross Niagara Falls using no uh, safety equipment whatsoever. As the story goes, 25,000 people showed up to watch him cross over the gorge. It was 1,100 feet long and 160 feet high right over Niagara Falls, right here, just about 20 minutes away. And when the, tw the crowds grew, uh, 25,000, he stepped off the platform and began his walk. And one step at a time, he walked to the entire gorge, to the crowd's absolute uh, 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 cheering. They went, they went berserk. They went crazy. They were so thrilled that without any equipment whatsoever, without any safety equipment at all, he was able to climb. He was able to cross. He then crossed again, but this time he did it on stilts. And again, when he reached the other side, the crowd went crazy in applaud. He then went in a sack. He then went with a chair and a stove. And when he got to the middle, he set the chair up, set the stove up, cooked an omelet, and ate it. <laughs> True story. And crossed over. Finally, he took a wheelbarrow and filled it with 350 pounds of cement and one by one carried it across the gorge. When we got to the other side, he declared himself to be the greatest tightrope walker in the world. And of course, the, cheer, the crowd began to cheer in agreement. He claimed, no matter what you throw at me, I can cross this gorge. And again, the agreement of the applause and the cheers. 
He said, I could take this wheelbarrow and I could put one of you in it and I could cross. And everyone said, yes, and they crowd and cried out. And then he said, which one's first? (laughs) He didn't cross the gorge again that day. You see, faith is not the absence of uncertainty. It's the action despite it. It's not a feeling. You can get caught up in the euphoria. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. I choose to. And it's a choice even that God, it's, it's God's enabling us even to make the choice in the first place. Absolutely. But there's still a responsibility. There's still us saying, I am going to choose this day to have faith despite how I feel. So who's first? And then we're giving stories, these wonderful stories to illustrate this faith and action. And in every one, they are choosing God despite how they feel. They're choosing to say yes, despite the circumstances. Each of these stories are great. In Abel's case, we read it already. In Abel's case, the evidence of his faith, and these will be fill-ins for you, the evidence of his faith is in his giving. The story reads, in the course of time, this is in Genesis 4, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice and offering, but on Cain's and his offering, he did not look with favor. And the key here is that Abel brought his best. Abel Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. The fat portions were always the most expensive, always the best ones that you could have. He brought the fat portions of the first of his flock. And this is actually the commandment God gives us for giving, is that we would give the first of what we have. It's an act of faith. It's saying, God, I'm going to give you this, even though I don't really know how we're going to, how we're going to make this work. I don't exactly know how well we're going to do financially. I'm not totally financially secure yet, but I'm going to give this first. I'm going to give you the first of my fruits, and I'm going to trust that you will sustain me for the rest. That's always been the biblical principle of giving, is that you give of the first fruits. You give first and saying, God, I trust you in this. I trust that you will sustain me. No matter what uh, living conditions I have to go through to adjust in order to make this work, I am committing to you this up front, my very best, and trust and have faith that you will sustain me for the rest. So it's an act of faith to give. It says, God, I am nervous to give you. I don't feel totally financially secure. I don't know how many more lambs are going to be born to me, but I give you the best up front. It's faith and action. I can see it. It's tangible. It's getting in the wheelbarrow and saying, take me across. Then we get Enoch. The evidence of Enoch's faith was in his countercultural righteousness. Now, we don't know a lot about Enoch. Bas- Hebrew basically quotes, the, our Hebrews passage basically quotes the three verses in Genesis. That's all we go by in terms of what we know about Enoch. But we are given a little bit of a hint in some of the secondary literature. This isn't scripture, but it's secondary uh, wisdom literature that was written at the time. And it actually speaks of Enoch in one of the book. And it says, there was one, Enoch, who pleased God and was loved by him. And while living among sinners... He was changed or he was transformed. That's wisdom for 
10. And so we're getting a little bit better of a picture that while he lived amongst sinners, he lived up righteously. He lived for God. He, despite all the pressures and all of the, all of the forces at work around him, he chose God. Uh, we were cleaning out some of the boxes. We continued to try to move into our house, and we're almost there yet, but I found uh, yesterday, I found my old, I went to Mill Middle School for one year in seventh grade, and I found my old Mill Middle School yearbook here. Um, so go Mustangs, right? Yeah. So uh, I was just flipping through, and if you want to see my picture after the service, you can come. I'll show it to you. It's uh, interesting. But I was just, as I was reading, so you know, in yearbooks, like they write like little like, have a good summer, you're my best friend ever kind of stuff, right? So I was just sort of flipping through and looking at it. As I read it, and I was just familiarizing myself again with some of the faces, it brought back all of these like regressed memories of like trying to like fit in. So I was new when I moved here. I only lived here for one year and then we moved back to Rochester. So I was the new kid for that whole first year of middle school. And then by like, uh, like March or April, I knew I was moving away again. So I just kind of that, this whole year for me, it's kind of, we, it wasn't the area, but our family just ki- kind of calls it the year that doesn't exist. Like we just, we don't have any pictures of it. Like we just, we came and we laughed. It was just sort of a moseying through type of year. And so as I look through this yearbook, I just, again, all these memories of just being the new kid and trying to fit in and desperately not wanting to look weird and not wanting to do anything weird and trying to learn a, a different way of how does this school work and things like that. And it just, it brings back all these memories of just, you know, trying to fit in. And when I think of Enoch's story, I think, aren't we all just middle schoolers? right? I mean, that never changes. We don't, you know, I, I, I can hide it better, but really when it comes down to it, we're all still just middle schoolers trying to fit in. And that's why the faith of Enoch is so important, is that despite the surrounding culture, despite ever, everyone else being oriented in the opposite direction, our faith is manifested, it's subsidized, it's actualized in our obedience. And so faith, so Enoch gets in for his obedience. It's faith in action. We get to Noah. So Noah had to build a boat. He got, he got this uh, vision, or, or, or God spoke to him in some way and said there's going to be a lot of rain, so you need to build a boat, which I don't know about you, but I've been listening for God's voice these last few weeks with all the rain. Like, uh, you know, so if you got the message, will you let the rest of us know when to be at your house? Because uh, it just feels like that. I don't know about you. But, so God tells him to build a boat. And just to get, I want to throw a few numbers at you to help give you a little context about this. Noah had his three sons when he was 500 years old. Okay, so he was 500 years old. He had his three sons. And then the passage says he finished the ark when he was 600. Now, the ark was roughly 450 feet wide, which is a football field and a half long. Three stories high and 75 feet wide. I'd bring out my a tape measure, but it's not long enough for this one. So you just have to picture it. A football field and a half, 75 feet wide, three stories high. In 2012, actually, a man in the Me- Netherlands built a replica ark using these same dimensions, and he reported that it took 14,000 trees to make. Now, doing rough math and considering the size and the scale of the project— it is estimated that it took Noah 50 to 75 years to build it. Remember, 70, 
14,000 trees, no chainsaw, right? You are preparing every log yourself, a football field and a half long, 75 feet wide, three stories ties. It's estimated it took him 50 to 75 years to build. Can you imagine spending, let's say, let's call it 50. Can you imagine spending 50 years building an enormous boat in the desert without knowing for sure if you were wasting your time? I mean, our passage says it. He built it not knowing that if this was even going to work. Can you imagine the ridicule he must have experienced? Can you imagine the nights, the sleepless nights going, you know, 30 years into this? Like, well, I don't think I can go back now. I think I just need to forge ahead here, but I don't know what this is going to do. And so the evidence of Noah's faith was in his work. God called him to a work, and he said yes, despite the progress and the process. The process was long, and the progress was little. And yet Noah had faith in action. Abraham, the evidence of his faith was in his calling. The whole story of Abraham in Genesis 12 starts like this. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Notice the future tense. So God doesn't say, hey, I want you to go over here and and relocate. So like pack up your stuff and head over. No, no. It's like say goodbye to your homeland. Say goodbye to your family, your friends, everything you've ever known. And get in the car and start driving and sort of on the way, I'll start telling you where you're going. Like, can you imagine that? Like, go to the place I will show you at some point in the future. That's the definition of substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not yet seen. And then we get to Sarah, finally. The evidence of faith was in her pain, her grief, and her shame. In her pain and her grief and her shame. Because you got to remember, God promises Abraham that he was going to father the nations. He was going to father this, this great nation that was going to be the one that was going to bless every other nation in the world. From your generations, Abraham, your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and of the sand, of, uh, or the uh, uh, sand in, on, on the seashore or beach. I can't remember. Oh yeah, Sarah, um, you're barren. Now, that alone would have been difficult, but we have to remember back in those days, in, a, in, a, in that culture, barrenness represented loss of status, identity, and purpose. A woman's role was to pass on the next generation. She was to be the container for which God would bless generations. That was her job, her role in that culture. And to be barren meant a loss of identity, of status, and of purpose. Incredibly humiliating, incredibly demoralizing. And she lived with that for year after year. She was experiencing a great sense of loss and failure, and yet she considered the one who made the promise faithful. She chose to believe despite how she felt. What we need to understand about all of them is that the final paragraph reminds us that none of them had closure. 
None of them at the end of their story finally got to see the full picture. In verse 13, it says, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Abel was murdered. The Hebrew story of Enoch simply says he was not, for God took him away. After the flood, Noah lived another 350 years. So if you do a rough, again, rough math with sort of the genealogies and see where stories lie, he was more than likely alive during the Tower of Babel. Which means he, he helped restart all of humanity only to see them make the same mistakes again. Can you imagine how demoralizing that would be? Like, we did all of that. I, I spent 50 years building a boat so we could learn from this. And he... He kept, who was kept alive to see Babel be built and, and eventually dispersed. God promises Abraham and Sarah that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and yet in the, at their death, they only saw one child of promise, Isaac. It's the only one they saw. And they had to trust, despite what they, what they saw, that God would be faithful. None of them got to see the full picture. None of them got full closure in the end, but they had faith, they had action, despite how they felt. And their stories are powerful, and their stories are inspiring, but their stories are your story. So what will your story be? In Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, it's describing, uh, it's trying to remind the people, Isaiah is trying to remind the people that they are faithful and that if you remain faithful, if you remember the people that have gone before you and remember that you are the same as them, that you will live righteously and you will seek the Lord. And so Isaiah 51 says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek, in the, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who gave birth to you. You were cut from the same stuff as them. You see, the danger of calling this chapter the Faith Hall of Fame is that it sort of separates and distinguish, distinguishes these people as being special on some sort of special echelon that we will never get to. It's sort of a Hall of Fame, and they've got stuff that we don't have. And that can be no further from the truth. The quarry that Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah came out of is the same one you came out of. You were cut from the same quarry. And if you believe that, if you embrace that, if you welcome that, you will recognize that their story is your story. So friends, what will your story be? If the Bible authors wrote a chapter about us, what would they say? By faith, the Heinz. By faith, the Schultz. By, by faith, the Rich Barts. By Marilyn Urschel. By faith, the Lambs and the Wilsons. By faith, Randall Church. Friends, what will our story be? Because we were cut from the same quarry as them. 
They're not special. They have the same spirit that was residing in them is the same one that resides in us. So what will our story be? Which gets us back to Jesus, the great tecton, the craftsman, the stone mason. In First Peter, it says this, As you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You see, Jesus, the great tecton, comes and he cuts you from his quarry and he begins to chisel and shape you so that you will fit perfectly in his house. He comes and he says, give me your faith, give me your action. I know you don't feel it right now, but choose, hang on, you can do it. I'm with you, I will enable you, I will empower you, I will be your assurance. But let me come and let me chisel and let me carve and let me form so that you might fit into my house, that you might be a little closer to what it looks like. Because these stories are our story and these stories intersect with our stories. Maybe you're like Cain and out of the abundance and access, you're only giving out of the abundance and the access if you are giving at all. And yet you sing the songs and you worship the God and yet your checkbook looks nothing like worship. And it's time to get in the wheelbarrow. Maybe you're like Enoch, struggling to maintain God's standards in the pressures of your circles and your workspaces. Maybe God has called you to a work like Noah, but it's a long process and you're seeing very little progress and you're getting discouraged and you're up, up at night going, did God really call me to this? Is this really what I was supposed to be doing? Maybe you're like Abraham and you have been called to something, you can hear it and you've been pushing it off and you've been saying, there's someone or there's something or there's some place I am supposed to go and I'm not sure about this because I don't want to leave my hometown. I don't want to leave a social group. I don't want to leave people or places or comfort and security and so I won't go. And you're on the fence and it's time to get in the wheelbarrow. Maybe you're like Sarah and you've experienced incredible pain and disappointment or shame. Maybe some of you are going through that right now and you smile and you sit and you hide, but everything in your world is upside down right now. And you are going to have to choose to believe that God is good despite everything else in your life and everything inside of you that says he is not. And so every day, every hour, every minute, you are making the choice. You are saying, I am going to trust God and I am going to believe that God is good because right now I don't know what else will carry me through. 
their story is our story. So what will your story be? A year ago, our family closed out a chapter of our faith story. And while it was nowhere near as long as Noah's, that, I still don't believe that, nowhere near as long as Noah's, we spent years in church planning and many nights wondering, did God really call us to this? Did I hear him right? I must have not. I must have eaten something. I didn't hear him that day. Like that was, man, I messed up there. Or is this ever going to work? And in the end, it didn't. Or at least not that we had hoped. And so a year ago today, we gathered, our community gathered, to announce that we were done. A year ago today. And we closed a chapter on our faith story. And now I choose to believe that those four years meant something. I choose to believe that the great tecton is chipping and chiseling and it's painful and it hurts and despite my pain, my continued, my still not resolved anger, frustration, embarrassment, that the great tecton is holding me in his hands and chipping away. I said, Brian, you're going to fit. This is going to be good, but you have to trust me, and you have to say yes, and you have to put your faith in action, and you'd have to be willing to do it again. Because I know what I'm doing. I'm the one who works with my hands. And you're going to fit. Because faith is not a feeling. It's a choice. We choose to believe no matter how we feel. And so I pray I live a good story. By faith, the longs. And I pray you will live a good story too. What will your story be? It's time to get in the wheelbarrow. What will your story be? So now this stone sits in my office, actually. It's not the most uh, attractive piece. There's a lot more other things that would look better, but it sits in my office to remind me that no matter what this life throws, the great tectonics and this chiseling and forming and grafting so that I will find my place in his house. And that's the same for you too. And so this is a constant reminder for me of this reality. I'm going to invite our communion ushers and our band up because communion then becomes another one of these reminders that we are part of God's family. That God is not finished with the story yet. That it looks bad. And his disciples thought this was it. And at Easter, Easter came. And it's our story. It's a reminder 
that God is the one that will hold us all together. It's our story. It's our reminder. It's our reminder that we are part of this big story. We are cut from the quarry. We are grafted in. We are hewed so that we will fit. And so we come together to celebrate not only what Christ has accomplished, but when we will get to see the final picture. We will get to see the closure. We might not see it in this life. I might never see why in this life. But this is our declaration that God is putting all things back together. He's going to make the whole thing fit. It's our celebration at the end of the ages when we get to it sit at the banquet table of the wedding feast of the Lamb that we will see the full picture, that everything, it won't be distant anymore. We will know why. And so while we live in this faith now of not necessarily seeing the full picture, we will. And so we come to celebrate that. So we'll start with the bread. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks for it, he broke it, he passed it to his disciples and said, take, eat, all of you. For this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.